1: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Hey everyone, it's Slaney. I'm releasing this Get Vocal live stream that I did where I had author Elaine Smith on to talk about her book, A Gun in My Gucci. Now, I'm releasing it as a regular episode so that you have an opportunity to submit your entry by Thursday where I will be drawing the name of the winner on my Get Vocal live stream on Thursday. Don't worry, we'll be back to a regularly scheduled episode next week. Okay on with the show. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us for True Crime Thursday on the Get Vocal platform. I'm your host, Lainey. I host the True Crime Fan Club podcast and the paranormal podcast called It's Haunted, What Now? And I am joined by a very special guest for this evening's live stream. That would be Elaine Smith. So Elaine, welcome to the show. And please share a little bit about yourself with us to introduce yourself.
2: Well, thank you for your comments. Um, I was an English major in college, but I actually really hated writing. So (laughs) this book was um, an endeavor that was like blood, sweat, and tears because writing, I think, is really difficult. Um, but it was a story that I thought was just so phenomenal that I just needed more people to, to hear it. That Ken Eddow and myself, um, were able to come together under some really drastic circumstances and, um, give the initiation of numerous cases prosecuted that really did take down the uh, management of the Chicago mob. Yeah, it's, so, it's it was pretty amazing.
0: intense the way that everything kind of unfolds. It's like every time I got to a new chapter, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to fall apart. And then I'm like, okay, never mind, It's not somehow it's saved. So there is an interesting story that you share briefly in the beginning of the book about how you first kind of got introduced to the world of true crime, if you will. And it's a very personal experience that happened when you were younger, which mm-hmm. is pretty much my biggest fear and something my mom hammered into my head that was going to happen to me when I was younger if I tried to go outside without permission but you were kind of in a time where you could leave the house and there was no problem like the idea that you were walking to the movies with your friend was mind boggling to me because there's no way I'd ever be able to do that you know during the time I grew up so would you mind sharing that story with us so
2: that we can kind of get an understanding of where you started um I think I call it the day uh Sh- Chicago lost its innocence. um there were two young boys um kidnapped off a streetcar and then later found uh you know cut into pieces in a force preserve around chicago and um then there was another kidnapping of a young lady who was found in a drum in the lake, and all of a sudden. Um, kids that were walking around, like going over to your girlfriend's house or going to a movie on a holiday, um, became really scary, became very almost life threatening mm-hmm. because all of a sudden these kids started to be, started to be taken off the streets. Um, and that's, I, I had a guy that followed me. I knew this man was following me. Um, I tried not to believe that it was, you know, a really a bad person when he stopped the car and got out of the car and dragged, attempted to drag me into the car. And I, uh, pulled away and ran into like a candy store that was open at the time. Um, and called my father to come pick me up because I was afraid to walk home the rest of the way. I was terrified. I was, it was a defining, moment of my life Um, and I never forgot it and ever since that point I started looking at uh, license plates I started I taught myself the models and makes of cars and when I really did become an FBI agent the people that I worked with the guys were like shocked when I could call out the city and the make and the kind of car that things were and license plates because it had been Emblazoned in my fear and my experience to make sure I got those details down.
0: Yeah, it was a trauma response to something. Yes, and it, it's incredible that that's kind of what happened out of that trauma was something that really helped you in your career and being able to recall those facts quite quickly. Um, yeah. So I'm sorry it did. I'm sorry <laughs> yeah. I had to
2: experiences because as a young girl, it it's was terrifying. It I'm sure really changed my life it did change my life
0: and I found it quite interesting it kind of took me aback a little bit by your your anticipation of your father's response to you calling him out of fear um that you were kind of like oh he's going to be upset that I called and that I'm scared to go home I guess and is was that kind of a norm or something I I don't know because I know that you know I don't know how the response was then or if it was like ah, get yourself home kid you know you live in the city it was sort of like that
2: yeah um it was uh we were not uh babied um it was a time when uh, you don't cry mm-hmm. uh you hold it in uh, even for girls i was going to ask even and, for women <laughs> yes even for girls um and and so but it did teach me a lesson um my father was very loving but he was also there was really a divide between adults and children and what children could expect. Mm-hmm. And children could not expect their parents to drive and come and get you or leave the house and come and get you, much less take off work. No one took off work. No one went to your assemblies. Uh, um, it was like they were working. They had to work because they had to get food on the table and there was no fooling around. Yeah. Uh, you took care of yourself.
0: Yeah. You were pretty self-sufficient, it seems. And that's kind of been how you've been throughout this book. I was just like, I call you um, whenever we were, when I was promoting this episode, the resident badass of the (laughs) uh, FBI, because I am so truly enamored with the way you took charge of your life and of your career. And it, it, it was an interesting jump that you took from being a school teacher to going into the FBI. And once we get to your training in the FBI, I'm going to call out a moment in the book that made me laugh and go, yep, I'd probably say the same thing. But um, can you tell us a little bit about that jump from going to teaching school to now trying to you know, spar one-on-one with guys in your FBI academy?
2: Well, I'll tell you how I made the leap because I became a school teacher in the ghetto of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it was the most violent, uh threatening place that these children lived in and therefore the teachers that came into the neighborhood lived in. I had like 43 fourth graders and I was in a mobile unit oh, wow. which during mm-hmm. the riots was burned. I mean all my bulletin boards, all my books, all everything was burned down oh, because they rioted and burned the neighborhood. Um and, and I would hear shots fired. I found a dead baby in the garbage can. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, uh, nothing that the FBI could do to me would ever match the trauma that I had for the years that I taught in the ghetto in Chicago. Wow. It was, uh, if any kids made it out of there, they were, they were miracles because they lived in such violence every day. And you being a teacher, you went into that violence every day. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it spilled over on top of you. So um I think that's what gave me anything that the FBI asked me to do. Oh, well, this is nothing. I was a school teacher teacher in the ghetto. Yeah, I-, I knew what the race riots were. I knew what it was like when Martin Luther King was killed. Uh, what you throw at me is not going to frighten me as much as I was then. At least you give me a gun. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at least I had a gun. When I was a student, I, I, yeah, I had a pointer. I mean, you know, big deal.
0: <laughs> yeah. Were you ever threatened in any way while you were a teacher? Did you ever become fearful because of an interaction um, where you were like, wow, I don't think I want to do this anymore? Or yes, I well, did. It, it, it was,
2: it um, was, uh, uh, the children were incredibly violent, were incredibly, mm-hmm. if you touched, if one another child touched a pencil on their desk, their first reaction was to explode because mm. that's what they saw at home.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Their first reaction was they were, they were going to hit somebody upside the head. They were going to fight. I mean, it was, they were on uh, walking an edge of keeping their lives together, which was totally surrounded by violence and Not being able to trust the adults that were supposed to be taking care of them.
0: Yeah. I I can't even imagine how tough that must be, especially probably even today, knowing um, how the crime rate has escalated in Chicago and probably maybe significantly worse than when you were a teacher then.
2: Yes. Um, I mean, I think all these people are being shot on the streets and there are children witnessing someone being shot, maybe in the head, wherever, but falling on the sidewalk and, and... I can't imagine how traumatic that must be for them.
0: Oh, yeah. The trauma's got to be so intense and crazy. Um, So you finally take the plunge and you decide to go to Quantico to become an FBI agent. And I love the way that you portrayed the background investigation into you as an agent because as a... Layman, I will say. I don't expect, I, when I think about the FBI and, you know, the interrogations into the backgrounds, I imagine they're like, well, what did she do here? And what did she do there? And you, you basically said the questions were very boring, you know, when they were interviewing your friends and were like, hey, could she shoot somebody? And they were like, yes, Elaine <laughs>
2: <accident." laughs> Yeah, in a New York second, this chick could shoot somebody.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And, Oh, that's what we had to
2: do yeah like, if, to save someone's life or our own lives man you were going down
0: yeah you were like hey it is what it is um yes so I thought that was really interesting and I that kind of dispelled the magic behind that so I was like oh okay because in another world I dreamed of joining the FBI or CIA and then somebody was like oh well you have tattoos you're easily identifiable you'll never go into the field and I was like Okay, never mind. Well,
2: that doesn't count. Yeah, not anymore. I was like, not anymore. Um,
0: I missed my big break there, Elaine. Um, So you go there and you start training. There aren't a lot of females in your class of um, FBI agents. So what was that like? I know it didn't seem to me in the book when I was reading it, that you were super intimidated by the fact that there weren't likely going to be a lot of females. It was more of like, well, they're probably, I'm going to be the one I'm going to be the one that's here and I'm going to make it, or they're just going to have to kick me out. But what was your mindset? Did you ever think about that truly in a sense of like, I got, I got the the deck. Oh my God. The deck stacked against me and this, and I really got to show off.
2: Um. Well, the guys in my class were in the same position that I was. Mm -hmm. They were trying to prove themselves. They had to pass all these tests the same as I did. And they never really intimidated me unless it was really in the boxing ring, (laughs) which I, of course, was totally horrible at. And uh, wrestling, they could always overpower me. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, academically, no, they couldn't. Um, I could hold my own. I just finished my master's degree. I was kind of accustomed to studying and mm-hmm. I slipped right into that. That was pretty easy. There were 35 men, no, 30 men and six women in my class. Um, And I never expected to have those six women be my friend mm-hmm. because it just wasn't set up like that. It was like each one was fighting for themselves, but it didn't turn out that way as we got to know each other. We became very bonded. Mm-hmm. We were very uh careful and protective of each other. But actually we didn't really relate to the men. Mm-hmm. We really it was each guy, every guy for themselves.
0: Why and why do you think that yeah. is? Why do you think that's created that way? Because we think about law enforcement agencies as having a camaraderie, right? Where it is you protect and you know, you're protecting your brothers and sisters out there, but when you're training, it is like, "Hey, you're on your own. You can't expect anybody to be there behind you if you have to do this." So, why do you think that is, or what do you think it gave you in the sense of whenever you finally transitioned on into the field, um, you know, having that camaraderie? And and it took a while. <laughs> a lack
2: of camaraderie. Yeah, a lack uh, of it. you know, when I went to Quantico, I, I Sly I and the Family had this "We Are Family" the song. Yeah. Uh, all my brothers and sisters and me. And I thought that that's how it was going to be. And when I got there, it wasn't. It yeah. was like, man, these women were trying to stab you in the back. It was like every, every dog for their own. Yeah. Uh, we did all become friends much more than with men. Uh, cause men, I don't think really, they were under such pressure and struggle and they, and uh, they didn't identify. With how that was compounded when you were a woman, mm-hmm. um, so the women in my class we became very close. My roommate, I am still very close to today. she lives in Atlanta, we see each other often um, but the men it it was just it was like boot camp, yeah, I mean it was like every guy has to prove themselves and I can't help you because I'm barely making this myself. Yes.
0: So. I want to talk about quickly that experience you had in the boxing ring um, with, I think, Orlan or something is his name. Yeah. Oh, my God. I don't want to give his
2: name. It's embarrassing. He'll be. embarrassed.
0: Yes. I thought yeah. it was so funny because it was it was um, I could see you there. Right. Kind of taking these hits and and, you know, just swallowing your pride and being like, hey, you know what? I'm not going to win this fight, but I'm going to try my he- darned us to like get through it and you finally finish and your instructor comes over and says hey come to my office and then can you share with us kind of what you what the conversation was from there
2: all right so if any of you if you have never had never been punched in the face um it's an experience that is not pleasant and it it's very shocking and particularly if you're a woman. Because no one punches you, I mean, I didn't wrestle when I was young. I had an older sister, but she never punched me. yeah, I mean, we would were just want to we must punch that people. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this this guy had to punch me he uh few of the guys were you know, I were boxing, and they were kind of doing it lightly with me and the- and the the gym teacher said, "Come on over and really come over and fight her." And then, then I really got it. I mean, they just one-two punch on me, you know. And <clears throat> we can't. We wore helmets. And after this class, he said, and I took my helmet off, and there were tears in my eyes. God, you never cried. You never, absolutely, ever cried.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I guess I was punched so much that I couldn't help couldn't it. it. And he, yeah, and he says, Smith, come to my office. And he brings me into the office, and he shows a picture of my husband boxing. And it was Purdue. It was taken to be as a an advertisement or showing what agents did to train. Mm-hmm. I never even knew he took the picture. And he says to me, "Now I am going to make you as tough as your husband." And and I and I said to him, "Well, the only thing I could think of when I was beaten up was that I was going to have my husband come and beat the shit out of that guy." <laughs> And he said, no, Smith, no, no, you're going to beat the shit out of yeah. that guy. Yes. And so, oh, okay. I have to wrap uh-huh. this around my head. Yeah. I guess. I got to be a big girl. I got to put my big girl pants on and my gun. Yeah. And I'm going to break. And then yes. I'm going to
0: kick his ass.
2: <laughs> yeah. Then I'm going to kick his ass.
0: I thought that was so hilarious. Cause I was like, that's what I do. Except I call my brother and be like, Hey, <laughs> this guy just beat me up. Yeah, in class. I'm ready some to beat you. Big
2: guy that you can have that will come to your defense. Exactly.
0: Right? Yes. But what um, we haven't touched on yet is that your husband is also a former FBI special agent as well. Um, So was it always kind of in the back of your mind that you were going to be a part of the FBI? Or was he just I know he had mentioned to you that you would be a good agent or a great agent is what you turned out to be. Um, But how did it how did that kind of come to fruition to where he was telling you this? Was it just something he saw in you and was like, yes. And kind of subconsciously. Yeah, I think it was something that he
2: saw in me. I think he saw that he likes people that are tough. Mm -hmm. And he saw that I really was tough when I lived through teaching in the ghetto. And then every time we were transferred, the FBI transferred him around, I got another teaching job. I was always the one that had to scramble to get a job uh, after he was transferred with the FBI. And he thought that I would make a great agent. And and many agents asked him, why did you ever do that? Why didn't you want your wife to be an agent? And he said, well, I always thought she'd be a great agent. And he witnessed other women coming into the Bureau. And he thought that I could hold my own, that I could really um, give some recognition that there are women out there that can really do just a good job as a man. Oh, yeah. And you proved that. And yet. that was why. For sure. And I'm telling you, you really don't get in fights. Yeah. Agents don't get in fights. I mean, it's, you know. Yeah. So you really, do, you know, all you have to do is schmooze people, talk to people, not be afraid to approach them Right. People. That's the whole job. That was the whole job. It wasn't fighting. Yeah. You didn't get into fights yet. I
0: thought that was really interesting. So you are a baby agent and you're ready to hit the ground running whenever you finally pass the academy. And I I thought I was like, God, what the ambition behind this? I love that because I'm like, we've all been there where we've, you know, gone into our career and we're like, all right, give me the hard stuff. So nine to five, I work in HR and I was like, give me all the crazy cases because I do employee relations. So I was like, give me all the crazy Mm, cases. Yeah, you've seen it though. I want all the sexual harassment, all these things. And everybody's like, wait a minute. You need to learn this, this, and this. And you need to talk to learn how to talk to people to get them to be forthcoming with you before you can just walk into a room and be like, Hey, did you do this? Um, and I saw that in you when you first passed the academy, you were like, All right, what am I doing? So they kind of gave you a really like, you know, grunt work to do when you first started. And I didn't really grasp what this title three business was. So
2: um, <laughs> it was like, oh, title t- three is like one of the most important um, methods of investigation that agents can do against organized crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when you wiretap their phones or wire, put a wire in their office mm-hmm. or in their living room or in their kitchen. And on that, they speak very freely and they talk about their crimes. They can talk to somebody else that's a criminal and they'll say, don't talk on the phone. Five minutes later, they'll start talking about doing a robbery or something. And I mean, it, it's just astonishing. Yeah. Um, they rarely used pay phones. They used their own phones or the phones, the pay phones that were at the places they hung out. So that was where we got a lot of information and prosecutable that they would start talking about the things that they did, yeah. the hijackings that they did. The robberies that they did, uh, the muscle that they put mm-hmm. on, the extortion that they did. So uh, wiretaps were a very important tool, but they were bloody boring <laughs> to sit in this Not room.
0: Not as exciting as, it no. make it, as they make it seem on TV.
2: Oh, no, it's horrible. You sit for like eight hours just listening to these people. Sometimes that's if they get on the phone mm-hmm. or if you've got a wire in the building. And then you just ad nauseum this just everyday mm-hmm. crap.
0: Yeah. The day-to-day rumblings of your life and you're like, that's not yes. interesting, but maybe one piece will be. Um, well, occasionally,
2: <laughs> it, it, you it pays know, off. It, excla- exclamation of like some robbery they're going to do. Yeah. What they're going to have.
0: I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. How did you get involved? And I, I'm trying to avoid spoilers in this group because, newsflash, we are going to be giving away this signed copy, just so you see it, the signed copy of A Gun in My Gucci to one lucky listener today, or not today, for the next Get Vocal live stream. Um, Elaine was kind enough to sign this for us, so it is an autograph copy, which is super sweet to have. Um, but I don't want to give any spoilers away because I really want people to go and read this book because it is super interesting Thank you. and truly enthralling it, it was something that i couldn't put down and i was like i gotta see what happens i gotta see what happens um because the way you kick this book off is like a gut punch to your you know when you're reading your to your imagination you're like how did this happen and how it's kind of dumb luck really um how, yes it was dumb how luck. this and how it yeah, ended up
2: was dumb. exactly luck. it was just like so so uh, hollywood it was yeah. hollywood it, it, it does
0: it, yes. it is a story for a movie for sure um so how did you find yourself i know this but how did you find yourself going into the criminal division of looking into kind of this mob
2: activity how did i find myself well it it was um i thought my the key to being a good agent mm-hmm. Was not to sit in the office, but to get out on the street. And I went, I forced myself to talk to one. My thing was you have to talk to one person a day. Oh, geez. You have to meet. You've got to knock, knock on a door. You have to talk to one person a day. And it was like, Oh, geez. I'm scared. Well, he's going to tell me to go away. I'm, you know, how can I approach the guy that's head of the north side or? You know, no yeah. Uh um, but I did and I did time again and that really paid off for me because I had approached Canada on three different occasions attempting to flip yeah. it. Yeah. And um so that was it. I just had and I went out and I pounded on doors, I talked to people um uh, and it worked. It yeah. worked because you never know. You never know when the shit's going to hit them, that they're going to need to pick up the phone and maybe they'll talk to that woman. Yeah. That was an FBI agent that just came out of the blue and said, can I take you to coffee? Yeah. That was
0: insane. I
2: was like, yeah, sure. Um, how? Oh, they all never, they never drinks for sure. They, most of them said, yeah, I said, can I take you to drink? Have <laughs> um,
0: a What can you tell us about Joe. Tokyo Joe, as he's known, um, what would you, how would you describe him and his um, role and involvement in the Chicago mob?
2: Well, he was truly a unique person. First of all, uh, it was a while, uh, months before I realized that he had almost a photographic memory. And so he and I could go back on a calendar like three years before and almost pinpoint times that he met with the bosses. He remembered all of the details. He remembered how much he would put in an envelope to give them the cut. So what Joe was, was a professional gambler and he would play poker. Now these were high stake poker games and high stake poker games are only sponsored by the Mm -hmm. mob. I mean, you had to come in with a couple thousand dollars just to get into the game. And in the early years, they were guarded by like the soldiers in the mob, um, like the punks. And they would guard the game so there weren't any fights and everybody was gonna get their pay. And of course they would get a cut to of the house's money. And these eventually turned out to be his bosses because he stayed gambling and running gambling operations himself with the mob. And he knew you couldn't run a gambling operation without paying the mob in Chicago, mm-hmm. period. Couldn't run prostitution. You couldn't run any kind of scam without paying the mob. They took their bite. And um, and 35 years of it. And when he was shot and survived three shots to the head, he said, all bets are off. <laughs> I can't go back to them. I can't. They'll shoot me again. And I had... Talked to him so many three times. He said, from his hospital bed, I want to talk to special agent Elaine Smith. And the commander that was there at his bed was astonished and said, Who the F is Elaine <laughs> Smith? <laughs> I was nobody. Sure yeah. I had 18 months. I was 18 months on the in the FBI, but I had gotten out there and I had talked to him. And he made an impression. And I had talked to other yeah. people. Yes.
0: I thought that was so Interesting that and the way that you lay out how he went basically to his death, um, or what was supposed to be his death is definitely something absolutely because you would be like, Okay, I was thinking like, how can I run from this? How would I get out of here? Like, how could I Oh
2: absolutely I asked him many, many times. Why did you do this? You knew you were gonna get shot. Why'd you do this? He said I had no other choice, I had no other life. I had to go meet them and he really actually he was a gambler and he said well I I figured out my oh, odds <laughs> and he said maybe my odds are that I'm not going to get shot and I can talk my mm-hmm. way out of it he was a very smooth yeah. talker um and he thought that you know he'd made a lot of money for these people and had would never really turned on them or anything shins them on mm-hmm. and yeah uh but it wasn't happening. yeah
0: I, I mean everybody is a risk once they become a risk right and so you just got to get rid of them I mean Every mobster movie you have ever seen in your life, it's like the second somebody seems to be made, they're gone. So
2: Yeah, like the two guys that attempted to kill him yeah. and m bummed yeah. We found them in yeah. a the trunk. I mean, you know, with their underpants around their ankles and stab wounds and shooting yeah. shots and it was horrible. They died a horrible when I
0: death. when I saw you go, I think the guys that shot Eto are in a trunk somewhere. I was like, oh my gosh, like of course we should expect this, right? Because if he's talking, then for sure he can make the men who tried to um assassinate him essentially.
2: Oh yeah. And you know, we I didn't approach these guys mm-hmm. myself. Some of my squad mates did. They thought, you know, we sent the guys yeah, up, not me. And um they wouldn't flip. One of them was pushed down the stairs by his wife. <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of funny that they were, you know, how they lived on the second floor. And she was so pissed and she just came and shoved him right down (laughs) the stairs. Get out
0: of here, please.
2: But so I was kind of glad that I, yeah, go down there, you know, (laughs) approach them. Yeah. She's like,
0: please leave my house. And by that, I mean, I'm going to shove you down the stairs. Why did she get in trouble for that? No. It was just kind of a part of the job. It
2: was, you know. That's yeah. Crazy. yeah, it was
0: because now I'm like, oh, you've assa- assaulted a, you know, a public officer.
2: Yeah, that's a federal yeah. officer. Of course she had. She absolutely yeah. had. Um, that's insane yeah. to me. Like I went when I we found the two guys in the trunk. I went to the one guy's house. Mm-hmm. His daughter was there. I came in and I said, I have, you know, some really terrible news to tell you. Maybe you'd like to sit down and, and um, they not, didn't say a word. They weren't talking to me at all. And they absolutely knew that he was dead. I wasn't telling them anything. Because it kind of comes from So life. someone, yes, that, and I think someone had mm. told them, called them. And said, hey. Um, but I think it does. How can you accept that? How can you accept that your husband is eventually going to be knifed and shot? Yeah, and, I mean, some
0: brutal, violent death. I don't ever think it's ever an easy death. Like, even with Ken, three shots to the head is a lot yeah you know um so uh, kind of going back a little bit what even made you interested in going through the organized crime side of you know the fbi and what what you know prompted you to go that route as opposed to you know the other routes
2: that are available through the fbi i grew up in chicago it was like you know yeah, yeah, the mob. It was the mob. And every day my parents would get the newspaper delivered to the front door and I would read these headlines. Another body found it. And it sounds mm-hmm. gruesome, um, but I was fascinated by it. It was. You're in good company you know, with that. Was, <laughs> yeah. I, I just had to, oh gosh, I got to find out about yeah. these people. Um, and you know, all the mob movies, they glamorize it and mo, and it really, I learned that it isn't glamorous unless you're really the mm-hmm. top boss. There isn't a lot of money. You have to kick up everything. You have to scrounge for every piece of money you get. Um, They're not living a fat life. They really aren't, except yeah. the high boss. Which
0: is another kind of myth that you really dispelled for me during that is that yeah. I was like, why? I mean, they should have all this money and resources available. And it's yes. like they're like any other Joe Schmo out there working a nine to five. Very yeah. Joe
2: Schmo. With almost not
0: even a no, it's truly like they're taken off the street, and that's probably maybe the only part of the mob movies that is right is that these kids are recruited off the street because they have nothing else to look forward to other than hey, my uncle works for them too, so I'm gonna join the family business essentially and work for them as well. Yes, it's insane. Um, so I don't want to get too involved into the story because it is really interesting and truly. You guys, if you are anxious like I am and don't like to wait for giveaways, um, you can head to the bookshop.org and search for A Gun in My Gucci. You get to support a independent bookseller and also buy Lane's book, which is really, really interesting. Um, and if you are a fan of learning about the mob in general um, and kind of the grandfathers of the mob, I would say the Chicago mob, you definitely want to read this book because it gives you such incredible insights into it. But you aren't just the person Thank who helped you. take down the Chicago mob. You also have some other pretty awesome highlights to your career. So, can you share those with us and your involvement with that? Especially with um, what people are really fascinated by is the nine eleven involvement that you have. Yes. So, can you share that with us?
2: Well, nine. First of all, l- let me tell you that nine eleven was um, one of the most painful uh things that could have happened to us as FBI agents mm-hmm. or people. Um And I, at that time was supervising 26 other agents and we were all in shock because we saw it on television, just like everybody else did. And nobody had ordered us anywhere. And I just gathered all of us around and I said, we're going to solve this and we're going to work from now until we drop. We're, Nobody goes on vacation. Nobody goes home tonight. We are going to work until we drop to mm-hmm. solve this and everybody was was there we, It was like all hands mm-hmm. on deck and Then I was called into the command center and we started giving tasks to people to try to solve who did this so at the time i had i was uh categorized as an expert in financial matters, and my squad was too. And we were given the leads, one of the leads out of New York, to develop the financial backgrounds of the 19 terrorists. We needed to know who sponsored this, who mm-hmm. paid for this, and follow those leads into like, right. who was behind all of this. And, um, and so that is what we started doing. And um, we developed, they all had financial backgrounds here in the United States. Um, we were able to develop those banking interests or credit cards that they had. One had a home wow. mortgage, really. It was difficult to understand how this happened. But um that I switched to nine eleven and I left my office for like five months. Um and actually no one did my work and all the files were <laughs> piled up high all around my office waiting for me like, to come back. Hey, welcome to work. <laughs> yeah. But when nine eleven happened and afterwards it was the entire FBI worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it was it was absolutely the biggest push yeah, we'd ever
0: I, had. I can't even imagine, I mean, because it's truly a, an attack on, you know, us in general as Americans. And so it was, I, I was probably, I think, in sixth grade when it happened and I didn't understand it. Um, until, and I still like to this day can't watch anything about it because it's so devastating to me about how great that loss was for us. And, you know, we had experienced attacks before we think about the Oklahoma City bombing, the previous, um, bombings on the towers, but nothing with this type of gravity or
2: nothing prepared. Absolutely not. And
0: so I think everybody who, is, you know, who was alive during that time and was able to witness it in real time, you know, is taken back the second we start talking about 9-11. So, A, thank you very much for your service and helping determine that. Um, And how you don't think about things like that, about how the financials, you know, kind of help trace who financed everything because you're just like, okay, who was responsible for this? But you don't, I wouldn't have thought to think Hey, we should
2: start with with the money, follow the money trail, you know? So I thought, yeah, I know. I worked drug cases mm-hmm. with DEA, and they never wanted to have a woman, you know, you can't go out on the buys, you know, like that. Da, 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 da. Uh, and I said, all oh, right, I just took it off the top of my head. Well, mm-hmm. I'll follow the money. And it was, I mean, sooner or later, they really yeah, oh, go ask Elaine because she knows where all the money <laughs> is. And, and so it was, and it, it, um, allowed me a seat mm-hmm. at the table. Yeah. I. I they didn't want to give me a seat but, at the table. Yeah. But I got to have a seat at the table. I said, well, I'll I'll <laughs> empty the garbage can, you know, and then you find all the evidence yeah. in the garbage but
0: can. That's what's so great about your story and how you present yourself is that you basically pull the chair out for yourself and say, hey, I'm going to sit here now. Hope you don't mind, but if you do, I'm still going to sit here. Um, you did that with your entrance into the organized crime unit. I thought that was pretty great where you're like, Hey, you want to go to breakfast? Then great. I'm going to turn you over. Oh, yeah. You know, sure. um, and you, I mean, I feel like you did that kind of in every step of your career. Like we talked about earlier, some of it was dumb luck. I know you had a, um, friend who was leaving to go take care of her, um, terminally ill father. And this kind of landed in your lap too. And that, kind of catapulted everything that happened in this book that was so like truly making everything a page turner where you're like okay okay something's gonna happen something's gonna happen um and of course we get the tragedies that happen in this book but also the triumphs that you go through in this book i'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors
2: step into the world of power
1: loyalty I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We learn, of course, of your experience and um, handling in the 9-11, but you also started teaching as a part kind of going back to it and teaching curriculum for interview techniques, I believe. Um, So was that kind of like an easy thing to get back into where you're like, okay, get back into teaching kind of.
2: No, 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 no. It was really, it was, um, I was part of the study where we developed how you Uh interview agents. You know, everybody sat around, around the United States and figured out what are the characteristics we want Uh in an agent. And we came up with like eight characteristics, and then we, did, you know, now we have we have hired professionals, uh, PhDs from the University of Minnesota and whatnot to. And we, what questions do you ask these people in order to see if they have these qualities? In order to see if that they'll not give up, they'll hardworking, they won't look at their watch at five yeah. o'clock and I got to go home. What do you get? How do you elicit that behavior from them? Um, and so I was part of developing those, uh, questions and the new interview process. And then the Bureau at that time was, uh, really under, you know, some, they were, you, they were going to get their butts sued because they had shown, um, prejudice against women and minorities in interviewing them. And so we had to make some, something that was really, um, couldn't influence by your opinion as one of the interviewers that, you know, it was had to be more equitable. um, Yeah. Fair. Yeah. Equitable. Right. See,
0: look at you trailblazer everywhere. I love it. Um, One question I had to, and it just escaped my brain, but what do you want people to get from your book? What lesson or what are you hoping when somebody finishes this book, the feeling that they get, or the lesson that they take from it, what are you wanting people to learn? If anything,
2: <laughs> that you're a badass um I think it was just well, no, um I think it was my grandchildren would never think I was a badass, okay, so um, I think it was just to tell a great story and just to tell. A story of somebody: If you work hard, if you try, um, you can do it. You can do it. You don't have to be six foot and two hundred pounds, man. You you know you can weigh one hundred and ten pounds, and you can really yes. be a force, and you can really put people in jail and put them people in jail yeah. for a long time. Um, and so there are opportunities for everyone, no matter who so, you are.
0: We recently covered a case. I I thought this was interesting because I've really been interested in espionage cases here lately. Um, We recently covered a case on the show, um, kind of on the CIA side with Harold Nicholson. Um, What do you think about things like that? I, I was really confused as to how somebody can go through all the trouble of like joining the CIA, joining the FBI, And then essentially becoming a turncoat, if you will. So what do you think about people who, who go through all that trouble? Like think about what you went through to join and the Academy to have somebody kind of just throw it all away. Harold Nicholson was one of the, uh, you know, top guys at the CIA or in a really high position and basically sold um, secret agent information over to the Russians back in, I think the early um, nineties. And so, so. What do you what do you have to say about that and you can be candid.
2: <laughs> oh, well there's Robert Hanson who mm-hmm. so was an FBI agent.
1: He's and, the one I'm going to cover um, next.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, you know, um yeah. what do I think of them? I I think they're total they're idiots. They're um they're broken and um Mm-hmm. Despicable. Is there
0: a lot of opportunity to uh, become they, a, a kind of a what do they call those when they? Yeah, a double agent.
2: Uh, you know, I work organized crime, and so organized crime yeah. was not going to approach. <laughs> you're right. like, we don't want you. But I think that yeah. But I think that they're going to do. I think the they're, they're the Soviets, the Chinese, whomever are always on the lookout. For somebody that they can approach and it's going to be somebody that they sense has a weakness, someone that is having an affair, someone that is drinking, someone that's drinking too much, someone Mm -hmm. who's doing drugs, that they always look for someone that has a weakness. And then, and then they'll work on that weakness and get them to compromise yeah, that's what they're
0: insane doing. and very true. Um, I will open the floor up to questions while I give the giveaway information before we wrap up with Elaine. So okay. if anybody has any questions, go ahead Thank and you. submit those in the chat box there and we'll ask. But in order to enter into the giveaway for Elaine's book called A Gun in My Gucci, you will need to, um, send me an email to tcfcpod at gmail.com with the subject EC Gucci uh, to make sure you're listening uh, and that you hear that. So subject EC Gucci and your mailing address. And I will draw the winner at the next um, Get Vocal live stream, which is going to be next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central Time. Elaine, I don't know if you have a huge social media presence or not, but feel free to Share where we can find you, where you'd like us to go if we want to get more. information.
2: Yes, I have a website. Um, it's a gun in my Gucci. Is that Mr. Smith? That <laughs> yeah, that's that's Tommy. Yeah. The love of my life. My high school sweetheart. Yes, you want to talk FDA about the agent. incident yeah, and rec- yeah.
0: recruited incident me about how his life was
2: almost gone. Just real oh, quickly. Yeah. If you want to... At 36, I, uh, he was shot, uh, in the abdomen, uh, in a training accident. And he developed peritonitis, which is a, uh, an inflammation or infection, uh, bacteria in the peritonidal uh, lining mm-hmm. of your abdomen. And, um, it almost killed him. And it was very lucky. We had a very brilliant surgeon at the University of Chicago. Who operated on him three times, and um, everybody pitched in. He had to have blood, and the blood would come in. It was donated by people, and I would say to him, "Oh, that's Roger Nielsen's blood that you're getting," because everybody donated yeah. blood because he needed blood, and it, it was a, a terrible experience. Um, but it also showed love yeah. that people—it's incredible—and
0: so, he. The way that you represent him, your relationship in the story, and the way that he supports you. I love that he joined you kind of going out on this first call and I was just talking to Tom and oh, you were yeah. like, I don't know if he knew that you're just my husband. <laughs> you're just kind yeah. of my hired arm now and I'm the one asking the questions here. So I thought that was really interesting and I'm glad that you, know, you had that support, which I think is really important for people you know, who are trying to pursue something that they're passionate about is that all they really need is themselves and maybe one other person who just believes in them and is willing to help them and encourage them, you know, go past that finish line to reach their goals. And
2: particularly, I think maybe if you're a woman. Yeah. I love your daughter saying,
0: I didn't even think about it. I was just going to eat cereal.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah.
0: So how, how was that for you as a mother to, be gone from her for six months because you had a.
2: oh it was tough it was very tough I would I came home on weekends a few times and uh I would just spontaneously start crying like I'm unloading the dishwasher yeah. and I just start crying because I missed them I missed I missed yeah. being there with my child um my husband um a- and I missed being soft and warm and, and and I realized when I got on the plane to go back to Quantico DC I changed it was like a cloak came over me and I became something different I became I was no longer mommy I was no longer my wife I was you know this robot from the FBI yeah. that was, was going back It was it was
0: truly well. a great read I got a lot of from it and um, kind of like what Mel Mel here said um was that she needed to hear that in regards to chasing your dreams truly and going after what you want. It is not only is it a really interesting story about how you kind of ingrain yourself with Ken or uh Tokyo Joe, um you also find a way to make things happen for yourself when the odds are truly stacked against you because you're in a time where you know, we're talking about like glass ceilings and it was like right at the top of your head. It wasn't something far away. It was something you truly had to break on your own. Um, And it's a really inspiring story that I think not only do you get a really interesting story about the Chicago mob, which, you know, takes your true crime fix to the next level, but you also learn something from it. And it, it inspired me where I was like, I saw parts of myself and the ambition that I have in your story. And I hope that other People get that from you as well. And when they read your book, because it it was transformative for me to to kind of have that affirmation that, hey, it's possible, you know, and, and you had gone through this career that you'd been in for so long and take a leap into something else that was completely unknown that they could have said, you know what, you're not good enough, go home. And, you know, you threw, you had to go back and on your knees and beg for your job again as a school teacher,
2: but you didn't. Yes, that would have been horrible. Oh, yeah. God, I can't even imagine that. They wouldn't let me back in the English department. But no, I, it I would think have that's been so amazing. And
0: so I, it was really inspiring that anybody who's truly looking to make changes in their lives can look at this story and see how much. Yeah, it was Just so successful for you. And you hit bumps and you hit, you know, stop signs along the way, really. And you still managed to get out on top. You got your guy as they like to say, and you have a fantastic career and an incredible legacy um, that I think this book is basically marked for you. It, it's your legacy and it's amazing. Thank you.
2: You're <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're um,
0: very well. So we didn't get any questions in here, but I think that's because you did such a great job. And I truly didn't want to spoil anything, you guys. So I'm so sorry. We could have gotten into some really good stuff, but... We yeah. can follow if you do have any questions, questions for real, but, let me know. Yeah. We can get Elaine back on. It would be great to have you and Jerry Williams on at the same time. She also. yeah. So Jerry oh, has yes, her own podcast yes. as well. And uh, you should think about joining us in the podcast world because what a story you have to tell. And this could be multiple episodes. So thank you, everybody. No problem. Thank you so much, thank you. everybody, for joining us on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube and on Get Vocal Um, for a a conversation with Elaine about her book. Again, if you want to get some TCFC goodies and also a chance to win Elaine's book, you have to subscribe to the channel and make sure you send me an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com with EC Gucci in the subject line and your um, home address or wherever you want your stuff mailed to. Um, Elaine, thank you again so much.
2: Thank
0: you, Elaine.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.
0: Bye-bye. All right, everyone. So that was our conversation with Elaine Smith, A Gun in My Gucci. Remember that you just need to subscribe to us on Get Vocal. Send me a screenshot of that with the title, E.C. um, Gucci in the subject line, and you will be entered to win your – copy of or your signed copy of this book. So I really appreciate everybody joining us. What a fascinating conversation. So make sure that you guys, if you have any questions for Elaine, if you can't wait to read the book, be for sure to send those to me and I'll pass them along or we'll have Elaine back on um, if she's interested. So thanks again, you guys. I hope you have a great evening. I'm going to go ahead and stop the broadcast. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode please be sure to rate subscribe and positively review the show on apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice you can find us on most social media platforms twitter at tcfc facebook.com tcfc podcast we're also on instagram at true crime fan club pod if you have an episode request send us an email TCFCpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, Nico at we talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at we talk of Dreams or wetalkofdreams.com.